Welcome to the Virgin Active Minds podcast by Virgin Active, where we dive deep into conversations with the best and the brightest minds in the health and well-being world. If you've got questions about health, exercise, or any dimension of well-being, we've got the answers one expert at a time. I'm Mark Cito, your host, because I love all things well-being, from exercise, work, relationships, and going deep inside our minds. I'm here to explore it all with you. This is what they came for. In this episode, we aren't talking about being physically fit, we discuss being future fit, how to stay relevant and competitive in the future of work. Meet Andrea Clark. As a former Washington DC reporter, you might remember seeing her on the news. She's also a former Iraqi humanitarian aid worker, edtech pioneer, business owner, and author. She launched her business, Future Fit Co. in 2012, which through writing, speaking, and facilitating digital programs for both businesses and individuals, encourages them to drive innovation, growth, leadership development, and cultural change. As we navigate this second year of the pandemic, we know what it feels like to hold so much uncertainty around job security and the future of our work and businesses. Andrea shares her insights into how we embrace change, develop our awareness, and how to stay ahead. A must-listen episode. Enjoy. Andrea Clark, welcome to the Virgin Active Minds podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me, Mark. I am so stoked to have you on our show. I've read your book and I adore it and I can't wait for us to get more into that. And, you know, we were just saying how this is such a critical time to be thinking about our future fit self. It's always critical, but I think now in the middle of uh, a pandemic in 2021 and a lot of the country being in lockdown, I think there's a lot of good stuff in here that our listeners are really going to be able to take home. So let's dive in and get to know you a little bit more. Can you give us a bit of a synopsis on who you are, what you do and how you've got there? Sure. Well, it's my job to train about a thousand people every year to be future fit for the 2020s. And I do that through public speaking. I do that through writing and also through delivering digital programs to businesses. My background is in commercial TV news reporting and um, I spent the majority of my career based in Washington, D.C. as a journalist working for filing news for Al Jazeera English, Thomson Reuters and the Pentagon Channel, as well as Seven News Australia when something big was breaking. So I had this really extraordinary decade of my life based in another country and that also led me to stepping into the humanitarian aid arena. So I was also an aid worker and found myself working on projects to rebuild Iraq, Afghanistan and Georgia. So I think the common thread through my career has been storytelling and wanting to tell other people's stories and wanting other people around me to be the best version of themselves. And so that's translated fairly naturally into you know, a business around growth, career growth acceleration of skills and the development of people. So that's where I find myself today. Cool. And we're about to jump into some questions all about that. But before we do, we've got one question we like to ask all of our guests at the start. Uh, What gets you out of bed in the morning? You know, I was thinking about this. I saw I was looking looking at your notes early this morning. And it's such a great question. Thank you for asking it. Before COVID, I think I would have said to you, 
I get out of bed every morning to keep clients happy, you know, and now I find myself in a radically different scenario where, yes, keeping clients happy is a joy and a privilege and something I love doing. But I get out of bed every morning because I feel like I'm more connected to nature. I feel like I'm more connected to the world around me. And I'm I'm in a privileged position. I wake up every morning and I can see I can see the surf and I can see the sunrise. And it is it's the most inspiring part of my day. And I feel like I get out of bed every day to be a better version of myself because I feel like I'm more connected. And I think that what that means work-wise is choosing and delivering work where there's much more intention and purpose to what I'm doing. So before COVID, I said yes to everything. And I find myself now really prioritizing quality over quantity. And that feels really good. And I think that's a place that we all want to to be. We all want to feel really good about what we do and not feel overscheduled. Mm. And look, and I've definitely got some questions in regards to that and purpose and intention and alignment with your work, especially. So that, yeah, I mean, that's a beautiful way to wake up and and a beautiful way to wake up and see the ocean. And I, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, I spend most of my time in Alexandria in Sydney, but waking up and opening my bedroom window to a plethora of indoor plants, <laughs> it's, you know, it's a big reason to get up and look at that and care for them and, you know, try even in the middle of the city being just a little bit closer to uh, nature. And doesn't it go to show how much more important our environment is? You know, I was traveling prior to COVID, I was traveling five days a week and I could not enjoy this remarkable backyard that I have. And Mm. we're all at home, some of us in lockdown, some of us not. We might be in micro lockdowns moving forward, but I think this is a really, you know, we've all been reminded that our environment is, you know, has a huge impact on our mood and our attitude, our mindset, and it's something we have to pay attention to. For sure. And I think you know, each weekend when Bunnings was open, <laughs> um, you could tell that people were finally realising because all of the plants were sold out, you know, they would get a new shipment in, I'd rush down and everything was gone. (laughs) I've never had plants before COVID and I was one of those people at Bunnings for sure. Instant garden. (laughs) Let's dive in. What's Future Fit? What's your mission? The mission of Future Fit is, okay, I believe that the responsibility for finding, securing and delivering work has shifted to the individual in ways that we've never seen before in the modern workforce. And so the purpose of Future Fit is to accelerate the confidence that people feel in their ability to not just get a good job, but to get a great job and to do work that's meaningful. But clearly we're in a really interesting phase where I think the workforce is about to get a whole lot more competitive. And so we've got to be you know, I think that for the first time we've had to, you know, face plant, you know, into this new work era where if you apply for a job on LinkedIn, there are 400 other people who have applied alongside you. So we now have to really figure out and work a lot harder at how we're going to differentiate ourselves in the market. Now, we've had 29 years of straight economic growth in this country. So, you know, if you're around 40, you've never been out of work. If you're at, you know, 40, 50, you've never it probably even had a month where you've struggled to find work. 
So we've got a new generation coming up that's facing a whole new pro whole new range of much harder prospects. Um, and so being future fit is about having, um, it's about skill set, mindset and behaviour. And in terms of skill set, it's about understanding that the human skills are going to disproportionately advantage you in your own career. And at the very start of your book, you've got this story of flying into Baghdad in the middle of a war zone. Uh, and you mentioned in there as well, box breathing and mantra. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah. And look, I start the book with this story because this episode in my life was the catalyst to me deciding how was I going to be future fit? How was I going to equip myself so I could constantly be in work and in very interesting work? So I was working with a major international aid group. My job was to go to Iraq with a camera crew, talk to local Iraqis who had been the recipients of food aid, small business benefits to get their, their businesses back working, and basically recipients of our aid. I was working on something called the CSP, the Community Stabilisation Project, which I think probably spent about $2 billion from USA, from the US government, trying to rebuild Iraq over that particular time. And so obviously I had to be there. And part of that was getting on a plane from Amman in Jordan and flying into Baghdad. Now I'm a really great flyer. I want to preface this story by saying I love to fly. I've grown up flying with my dad in a Cessna 172 and then a 182 and then a 210 for any of the aviation geeks among us. My dad flew his 210 out from Hawaii when I was about, you know, 12. And so we were extremely fortunate. We grew up on the Gold Coast, you know, with a dad who loved to fly. I've got two sisters. We would be in the back seat of the Cessna every school holidays, going to Ayers Rock, going to Lizard Island, flying around the country. So the three of us are very comfortable flyers and we really love everything about aviation. You know, we had a partial engine failure uh, once with dad, but he landed the plane completely safely. That story's in the book. So I, I say this because I love to fly. It takes a lot to scare the shit out of me. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I stepped on this plane in one very early, very hot morning in Amman, and I was the only person on this UN charter flight. And I just felt like this is strange. It feels strange to be the only person on a flight going into Baghdad. But nevertheless, you know, we persevere. So I think anyone who's been through a rapid descent knows that, it, you know, it's it's not something that can pass you by. I was not prepared for a rapid descent. I probably knew before I boarded the flight that that was the only way to land in Baghdad. But until it happens, you never really believe that it's it's going on. Anyway, so rapid descent obviously is to you know avoid being shot out of the sky. So it, it, it's exactly what it what the term says. It is a rapid descent. I think we probably went from twenty thousand feet to the tarmac in what felt like less than two minutes. You know, it was sharp, a really sharp descent. And I think what was most alarming for me was the noise of the engine rev, revving up and slowing down. And wet at a time when you're not supposed to be hearing that, you know, you're comfortable with that as a commercial passenger on the ground. But when you're hearing that mid-flight and when when the aircraft is banked, you know, it's nosediving towards the ground. It's all kind of alarm bells are going off in your body. <laughs> and staying calm is so counterintuitive to that moment. But that's where I engage the box breathing technique. And this is a very simple technique that Navy SEALs and high-performance athletes use because um, it 
you know, it empowers high performance. It reduces stress. It reduces stress, but it's a technique that heightens performance and concentration. And it's really simple. Four steps, breathe in for four, hold, breathe out for four and hold. And when you do that, it changes the, it changes the chemistry in your body. And in that moment, it was the only thing I could do to calm myself down and remind myself that this is something that happens every day. We're going into an active war zone. It's something that is going to keep me safe. It's the safest way to get on the ground. And I had nothing to worry about. But of course, in the moment, you know, your adrenaline is firing through your body. And that was what was happening for me. So I engaged that technique for as long as I had to, you know, until we came to a halt. You know, when the when we stopped and I walked up to the front, the pilot said to me, you wouldn't believe it, of course, a pilot's Australian. I said, mate, nice job. I think it's really important to talk to pilots. I think wherever you can engage with anyone who is in charge of your life, I think it's really important to say hello. And he said, oh, mate, I tell you, we, we, we dodged a lot in that moment. And um, he pointed out to a ute that was across the other side of the airport, if I'm remembering correctly, and he said, look, you know, those guys sit on the outskirts of the border. They sit there all the time and they'll just pick a target and it might just, you know, they might not be shooting actively, but it's certainly a threat because if they took the tail off an aircraft, then it's all over, you know, and so that's part of being in a war zone. And I, I accepted, you know, the night before when I was in Amman, I said to myself, I've got to be okay with anything that happens, you know, in the following weeks. So I have to really be at peace with that. I'm putting, my risk profile is really high. There's a lot of security that sits around me, but ultimately I'm responsible for putting myself into this context. And it's a really dangerous one. And so am I okay with anything that happens in the next few weeks? And I was, otherwise I wouldn't have got on the plane. That was a starting point to the trip, you know, to Baghdad. And it was um, a really life-changing one because I, I ultimately lost my job through part of what I saw, you know, in that process. And that's, that's what led me to say to myself, well, what are the skills and the mindset and behaviours that I need to really embrace and to actively pursue? So I never find myself in a situation where I'm out of work and, you know, desperate to be in the workforce because I don't have a trust fund. You know, how do I reduce that anxiety? Like, how do I, like, what, what is a permanent mindset that I need to be in to always be in these fantastic roles? Because, I'd always wanted to be a war reporter. I did a master's in defence studies and I had no issue going into an active war zone. And I found myself in that context as an aid worker and I always wanted the best jobs. You know, I always wanted to be feeling like I was truly alive and really awake, if you know what I mean. I felt, and Sebastian Junger writes about this in, in his book Tribe. He writes about being embedded with a group of US troops and what, what's really interesting about being in that heightened situation is that everyone's the best version of themselves because you need to, that's who you need to be to get the job done. That's who you need to be to you know, have any measure of success when, when things like that are going on around you. A gunfire was going off all day. I was woken by bombs every morning in the marketplace. You know, you want to be the best version of yourself and when I lost my job, I thought, how am I going to be the best version of myself when I'm in a different context where I still want to be really high performing? And so that was how Future Fit, that was a catalyst to me um, adopting Future Fit behaviours and then eventually getting around to writing a book about it. 
I mean, it's an absolutely captivating story. And at the start of the book, like it just holds you. It must have been an incredible experience. And I can hear what you're saying about having to be your best self in that moment and constantly while being there. Like it's almost a bit mind boggling. Like, you know, it's one thing getting through the flight, but then also just being there day to day in Baghdad. On reflection, you know, I can't imagine what it would be like to be in such a highly charged context like that, where anything go, where anything can go wrong at any moment. What, what, you know, what would it be like to be there if you weren't happy with yourself, or if you just fundamentally weren't someone who was driven by really strong values or anchored in really firm values? Because you know that was just the starting point. When I, I was met at the airport by five former SAS guys who were my, that was my security detail, and they briefed me in the garage of the airport. And I'll add that. There were bullet holes through every single wall. I couldn't even believe the walls were standing because there were so many bullet holes. And we then proceeded in a five-car convoy, four or five, uh, to travel from the airport into the red zone. So we were staying in the red zone. We were not in the green zone, which was, you know, completely, which was secured. Uh, The perimeter was secured by US troops. We were in the red zone. So we had Shia militia launching rockets from the from about 50 metres behind where I was sleeping. It was really, you know, it was serious. And, you know, so I remember being in the convoy and I'm, I'm in a burqa. I'm the only person in the car without an AK-47 or grenades. And, you know, I just remember in on reflection thinking, gosh, you know, if you weren't a good person, what would that moment be like? Because you're in a car and your only job is to survive. That's your only job. And, I, and we get to the compound and I have a security... The head of security, the chief of security, gave me a tour of the compound. And and if you imagine about four city blocks secured by about 400 locally engaged Iraqis, that was a scenario. So I'm driven into the compound. You know, it's, as I said, very active. And then he takes me for a tour and he says, here's your, here's your flak jacket and your helmet. Here's a, here's a bucket for the shower because um, there's no, and there, by the way, there's no hot water. You know, and if you look over that wall, that's where they're launching, they're launching rockets from there into into the green zone. So that's where the rockets are coming from, like just behind us. So you've got all of, you've got this very strange and very real dynamic at play and you've got massive generators that are generating power for the entire, um, all the villas that you're connected to. And so there's lots, it's very noisy. It's constantly noisy. And, you know, what would it be like to be there if you weren't a really solid person who had everyone's best interests around you at heart. You know, I certainly wanted everyone's best interests for me at heart. That's my safety and security. That psychological safety, you know, was everything to getting the job done for everyone in the compound. And that included all of the beautiful Iraqis who were engaged to protect us. So they had a meeting every day about security and and their voices were heard. If they saw anything that was suspect, they would change the way we traveled that day. So everyone had a voice. There was no, yes, there was a hierarchy, but in terms of contributing to this mini community we're a part of, everyone was very much a part of that. So you wouldn't want to be an asshole in that situation because you wouldn't last very long. (laughs) And I just love the contrast between the environment that you were in, but then also this practice of box breathing. It's kind of, it feels like, you know, me sitting here, before recording an episode, I do some rounds of box breathing because I still get very nervous about these interviews. But then kind of that contrast between where you were but how these little mindful 
practices can still play such a huge They still apply, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I still use box breathing. I still use it every day. And it is as helpful before I go onto a podcast as it is when I'm trying to get to sleep with US military choppers flying about 20 feet above the compound because they're they're on their you know their 15 minute um, rounds like they you know we had these these I think it's the Bell 207s they're very loud choppers they would be flying over the compound every 15 minutes so you'd never get any sleep there you know I, I've never had such a phase in my life where my sleep's been so broken and where frankly your, your adrenaline's firing all the time so mm. your body's not allowing you to rest properly and literally I had I had a flak jacket and helmet I took a photo of it flak jacket and helmet next to my bed and a torch and that was there in case the compound was overrun I say overrun in air quotes because if the compound's overrun and you get to the roof you know there's really no chance of you surviving there's no chance that anyone's really going to have enough time to come pick you up from the roof but that was life that has been life for aid workers and troops you know in Afghanistan for the last 20 years so imagine what that does to your system after months and months of your adrenal glands working at that level. It's extraordinary. And that's exactly my next question. Like how closely intertwined do you think our physical, mental, emotional well-being is intertwined with our careers, our work? Well, I've come to realise, and I think I can say this, you know, with the benefit of being in my mid-40s and having a highly charged career as a television news reporter, you know, and an aid worker, it it's come to me very late how critical well-being is and the fact that well-being is also a skill and it's a skill that should have been a chapter in my book because we cannot be high performing unless we recognize that radical well-being is the starting point for a career that has any longevity you know i had to make a decision in about 2010 i had to make a decision about staying in washington dc or coming home because I knew that I was very close to full adrenal burnout and uh, I was a very unhappy version of myself. And I decided that, you know, we, we used to talk about well-being as sort of, you know, in the context of work-life balance. But basically, you know, in, in my situation, this is so highly personal and highly contextual for everyone listening, but I was either in or out. You could not live in Washington and have a life work life balance forget it you could you could try but in my experience you know i was around um i came in contact with a lot of people who were taking ambien to get to sleep at night and taking and you know taking neurofin to wake up in the morning and that's where i eventually found myself i was at a point where i couldn't sleep properly if unless i took something and every morning i woke up and it was a couple of neurofin to get going and you know, there were more symptoms than that, but I, I had to make a decision. At what point was I going to put my well-being first, and what did that look like for me moving forward? I think at thirty-five, I said to myself, "I can't do this anymore. I'm a really unhappy version of myself, and if I'm going to live a life where I wake up and feel great, everything about my life is going to change." And I literally, I think I, I wrote this in the book. I put my life in a blender. <laughs> And I set it on fire. That's literally what I did. Like, because I had to start from scratch. I moved back to Australia and I had to start my life from scratch. And I knew that the first four or five years were going to be 
exceptionally painful, you know, starting my own business and going back into television. I knew it was going to suck a lot, but then I knew I was going to get to a point where those years of sacrifice were going to lead me to the freedoms and the options that I have now. And, you know, that's easy to say, but I think one of the big, one of the big falsehoods around entrepreneurship, et cetera, et cetera, is, you know, no one talks about how hard it is. If you don't have financial support and if you don't have a really great network around you, you know, what happened, you know, I mean, I'll be really candid with you. I had to, I got to a point where, you know, I had to borrow grocery money off my mother and off my best friend and I would for a year I'd alternate between them and I didn't tell either of them that that's what was going on but I couldn't afford to live but you know no one talks about the reality of trying to put trying to get your life together like trying to make things work and trying to kind of reset yourself on a path and you know everything's going to be fine but for a couple of years I couldn't buy coffee for myself when I walked out past the barista to get on a bus I I actually couldn't even I couldn't afford to get a bus to the tv studio like things were dire for me for all of 2012 my tax records show I made 25 grand in 2012 like try living on 25 grand over 12 months but I knew but you know what I knew all along gosh I can't tell you how many times I cried in the bathroom about this but but I knew that my well-being had to take priority you know, I, I knew that I, through that time, I had to reset my sleep patterns. My cortisol was spiking at 1.55am every morning for six months. That was, you know, that's the stress hormone. I had to reset my sleep. I had to retrain myself to sleep properly. And I had to retrain myself to eat properly and exercise in a way that was supportive to, you know, this whole scaffolding around well-being that I wanted to sit around a core proposition that was so strong and so in such a driving force in my life and so that's what it takes to rebuild your life you know that's what it takes to put radical well-being at the center of you know your existence and that's an extreme example but for me that was very real and it's easy for me to sit here and say just do some box breathing and everything will be better but the fact is that you know for most of us there there has to be serious upheaval and disruption before we get to anything that looks like radical well-being. That's certainly been my journey. Yeah. And it didn't feel good. For a long time, it did not feel good. Yeah. I was I was right down the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. <laughs> yeah. But you knew in your heart, right? Like that it, change had to happen and you knew it was going to be better on the other side. Oh, I had I was in no doubt, I was left in no doubt that I was about to go through overwhelming change and it was going to be very uncomfortable. And I also knew that most businesses, if they get past the first year, take four or five years to have any kind of cash flow that makes you feel any degree of security. And for me, I had two options. I could go and get a nice, safe, secure job at a major corporate in communications and do that for the rest of my life. Or... I could set that aside and and go for it and know that I was being honest with myself. You know, I think for most of it, 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 as you get older especially, it gets a bit more difficult to live a life that's off track. And I, I use this example when I, um, you know, when I share this uh, very depressing story about the first, you know, about, 
my life between 2010 and 2015. But if you're looking at looking at a compass, I remember, you know, I spent a lot of time growing up with my dad flying and and boating. And I remember looking at growing up, looking at huge maps and being really so enthralled by adventure and by the possibility of the fact that you can chart your own journey. But if you go five degrees off course, that gap, if you go five degrees off course off the true north, that gap gets wider as time goes on. And so give it a couple of years and all of a sudden you're 25 degrees off your true north, right? And so what's the cost of that? What's the cost to you personally of that, you know, even over five years? So that gap, that gap widens as we get older. And I was determined to stay on track and to not take an easy path and to take the path less, less travelled in my own little micro world because I knew it was the right thing to do. It's as simple as that. And I had to be, I had to get real with myself and I've had to, and, and I've made decisions along the way that have been really difficult but have allowed me to stay connected to who I am and to my to my core purpose because ultimately that allows me to help other people and to serve other people in the way I want to serve them. Mm, beautiful. And you can see, right, like it's, it's not just, you know, we were just talking about well-being, but it's not just that. It's also, you, like you just said, it's your core to who you are and what your purpose is. Um, and therefore it's worth it, you know, like to stay on that true north. Yeah. And look, I have to say, I've, you know, I think that the, when I talk about the future of work, it's really the future of everything. It's a future of you. But it's about being, and I think we've had this remarkable phase in the last 18 months where we have an opportunity to be more connected to ourselves, to our communities, and to the work that we want to deliver. So, of course, it's worth it. But, you know, it's it's hard. It's, it's really hard to get there and to stay there. And because it's not just education and training, is it? It's not just, okay, I should go and do a course this month because I haven't done anything for six months and that'll keep me future fit. No, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's a, we're all a constant work in progress. You know, it's certainly about, it's about mindset, skill set, and behavior. It's about curiosity and it's about being interested. So, you know, I, look, we probably all know someone who, for whatever reason, doesn't like to upgrade the software, you know, on their phone or their computer. And then all of a sudden, you know, <laughs> you're about to do something really important and everything just blows up. Um, we have to see our brains uh, and our we have to see our mindset and skill set, you know, as software. We have to keep upgrading them. We have to be constantly in a state of upgrade. Um, and we have to, and, but to do that, you've got to be interested. You've got to be paying attention to what's going on you know, around you. And, you know, I refer to that as playing the outside game. So you can still retrain, but if you're not really connected to what's going on around you, then how are you going to actually apply that new knowledge? Um, and that can be a, something as simple as, you know, having a Google News alert on your CEO or the business that you work in. You know, we've got to pay really pay attention to the outside game, what's going on with our communities, our customers, our clients. And do you think, obviously, you you know, you've just uh, shared with us some of the significant changes you've made um, to stay on that true north. I spent seven years in finance, in spreadsheets, before 
moving into fitness. Congratulations. <laughs> you've, you've, you're a recovering accountant. <laughs> you know, same thing though, a couple of years of making next to no money compared to what I was while working in London for an oil company. And But same thing, you know, made that change, knew that in my heart I had to. But do you think for everyone it's as grand as reinventing yourself or is it, um, you know, can there be smaller, easier shifts to make? Of course, of course. I mean, the degree of the shift is up really comes down to the, the degree of discomfort you feel about the context that you're in. So this is highly contextual. So a shift can be as small as negotiating a new work arrangement you couldn't possibly have a better time. If you can leverage your reputation and social capital within the business, there's no better time to say, hey, I'm going to move to the Gold Coast. I'm still going to be delivering and hitting my KPIs, um, but I'm going to be doing that. I'm going to be working from anywhere. You know, if you're a highly skilled knowledge worker, you are the clear and outright winner in this pandemic. I ran, I ran a survey with Bernard Salt's demographics group in January, and what we discovered was pretty insightful pretty privileged, I have to say. And what we discovered was that I think about 59% of people were um, not concerned at all about their visibility at work. And 55% said they were not concerned about job stability. 25% said they could pivot easily if they had to. So what that says to me is that we have this fragment of the population, this segment of the population who, you know, can make decisions in this pandemic environment that will support their quality of life and quality of work moving forward. So the shift and the degree of the shift is different for everyone. But what we're seeing now is, you know, a profound fatigue. I'm not sure that we've seen fatigue at the scale that we're seeing it at the moment. And that goes for wherever you sit in the labour market, you're probably exhausted. If you're homeschooling kids, you're definitely overwhelmed. I think that it's not a great time when you're exhausted. That's not a great time to make decisions about change. You might think, oh, this is really something I've got to manage, but there's enough going on. You know, our cognitive load is just at capacity. So there's a time and a place to make a decision about to what degree you need to shift. But if you're totally overwhelmed, it's usually not the time to make changes in your life. Like wait till you wait till things settle down and then really sit down and objectively think, what do I want? What do things look like now? Where do I want them to be in 12 months' time? And what's, you know, what's the hard work in the middle? What's the clunkiness in the middle that I've got to work through and straighten out to get there? That's usually what I say to people. And it's so simple. If you draw three columns, you put in the first column 2021, September 2021, here I am now. Third column, September 2022, what's got to change in the middle? Because that's where things can get ugly. Things can get really messy. Like, number one, tough conversation with my boss. You know, we've got uh, a segment of the workforce who are about to leave their job. So we've got big business scrambling to keep employees engaged. But let me tell you, you cannot keep people engaged at scale in the middle of a pandemic. The best thing we can do is leave people alone because the more initiatives I see, the less engagement I see in my practice. I think that's a massive take home for this very moment in the middle of this pandemic and lockdown especially in regards to, you know, trying to make massive change or feeling like it has to. But I can understand as well, you know, people are probably quite frustrated and I think sometimes when we are frustrated and feeling a bit helpless and overwhelmed, we feel like 
well, we've got to change everything. You know, yeah. <laughs> Slow down. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's good to go through a discovery phase about what you feel you really need to reset. You know, um, that can be small, it can be large. But going through a discovery phase for a matter of months can be very helpful because you can you can kind of go full circle and change your mind about some things. But if you feel repeatedly over the course of six months that there's one thing that's not making you happy, then you know for sure at the end of six months, you know, that's got to go or it's got to be adjusted in some way. Gosh, that could be anything because we all, this is what's so fascinating to me about, you know, the, the 2020s that we're seeing this rise of the individual that in some ways we've seen or we are seeing individuals that have never been so empowered in the workforce. Now, if you're managing 25 people, you've got 25 people who you've really genuinely got to care about and your line of inquiry has got to go beyond how are you today. It's got to go to uh, whereabouts are you set up at home? You know, is that the right place? What's the chair like that you're sitting on for 10 to 12 hours a day? So the individual, if an individual has strong capital within the business, they can make decisions about how and when they work that they didn't have before, they didn't have 18 months ago. I think, you know, I think heads of HR at major business major businesses should be appropriately terrified by that. You know, I think we've got a whole, we've got hundreds of thousands of highly skilled knowledge workers that will at some point recognise empowerment, true empowerment. They can actually step out of their role, mm. you know, just say you're on 120 grand a year. Well, what if you were sort of kind of stepping into the high-end gig store economy where you can decide what your high-performance hours are every day, say between 10 and 2, and work on a couple of different projects that really fascinate you. I mean, you may just decide to step out of corporate life altogether, which is what a lot of people are doing. And when we look at the data around people signing up or establishing PTYLTDs or establishing, um, you know, themselves as sole traders, we've seen that we've seen that number up 39%. Mm-hmm. So we do have a lot of people stepping out of the workforce saying, you know what, I think it's time that I, you know, run my own show and see what I can do, see what life looks like outside of, the big corporate arena. I mean, that's a really interesting statistic, isn't it? Like that growth in freelance. It says a lot. It says a lot. And I think we are, I don't think we've even started to see the, the scope and the scale of that change. When it comes to purpose, and I, I feel very blessed, you know, I've been working for Virgin Active for 12 years and obviously it's perfectly aligned with who I am and what I believe. Um, how important do you think purpose is to our careers does it have to be work could it be i don't know um, making honey on the side <laughs> is that enough though <laughs> yeah let's do that <laughs> it's funny you say that check out true honey true honey is the highest concentrated manuka honey coming out of new zealand and you know i'm, I'm looking around at, at businesses at purpose-driven businesses and and that is one to have a look at it's extraordinary the packaging is is next level, by the way. But look, there's a really interesting discussion that goes on about purpose versus meaning, you know, and can we have 25 million Australians who feel really purpose-driven about their work? You know, I don't know the answer to that, but but what I do think is that purpose will be a, a, an extremely powerful differentiator in how engaged we are and how mobilised we are and how how mobilised our teams are towards transformation. So I think that we have this pretty wild opportunity to to really ask ourselves 
a couple of sim- simple questions. And I think there are lots of different ways you can get to purpose. My, my way of getting to it is by simply asking, what's the conversation that you want to start? It's that simple. What do you feel so strongly about that you need to start a conversation about it? And we all know that leadership does not have to be loud. You know, I I wanted to start a conversation about being future fit. I could have just done one post on LinkedIn about it for 12 months and just left it at that. But I I felt much more strongly about it. So I want all of everyone who's listening, you know, and no doubt there are many of your listeners who are already extremely connected to themselves and their purpose. But I think that, you know, the way to to get to it is to simply say, what's the conversation you want to start? And Mark, you've started a conversation around wellbeing that, that extends well beyond the business that you work for. And that's, I think, a really great example of, you know, building building reputation capital, like building social capital. And that's about trust. You know, whatever our purpose is, if we want to do anything big in our career, we're going to need other people to help us, right? And those people are going to have to trust us. So we have this opportunity opportunity now to be really clear about, well, okay, what's the conversation I want to start? What are my activities around that that are going to establish and accelerate trust with certain communities? And then what's my activity? What's What are the activities and the assets that I'm going to use even as simple as something is as something as what photos or video am I going to use on LinkedIn to start these conversations and to get these conversations going? So yeah, purpose is at the core. I think there's no more dangerous time to be neutral. There's no more dangerous time through the 2020s to not take a position on something. I mean, imagine you're a, you're a highly skilled knowledge worker and you know you you want to be involved in the great projects. Well, the people that you know getting hired behind the scenes that would never have to send a CV into LinkedIn via LinkedIn to a company. A lot of your listeners probably are at that level, but that's where we want to be. We want people to find us. We don't want to have to be searching. We want to be creating value in the marketplace that attracts other people towards us. You know, that's when I think we know our purpose is transcending the business and the department that we work in. Do you think there's an age limit to discovering this? And do you think it changes as we progress? No, I mean, look, I think that there's absolutely no age limit for sure. And does it change? Well, I think I think for a lot of us, our purpose is the same, but the way we deliver it does change as a result of culture, values, belief systems. You know, my job, I, I see like my obsession is is growing people. And I, I, I believe and I hope that I've done that through being a TV reporter through being a communication director and being an author. But, you know, I had to leave television because the culture wasn't right for me. Like when you find yourself crying in the bathroom more than once a week, that's not a place that you <laughs> that you should be working. Like when you feel like you're in a room and you are suffocating because, as someone said recently, if the carbon monoxide is filling the room, that's how you feel about your workplace, you need to exit the room. There's nothing you can do about that but leave. And so you know, in, in my case, um, I feel like my purpose has been consistent and the thread's been consistent through my career, but how I've delivered that purpose has changed slightly. And that's, and that's okay. Yeah. How did you navigate that transition between roles? Uh, that's a good question. So I think, you know, the, the most explosive change uh, and transition came when I lost my job working for the International Aid Organisation. Now, I'm sure my colleagues have a different version of the story, but I believe that I was sacked because I discovered and flagged 
a fairly major misappropriation of funds going on within the business. And I'm talking about tens of millions of dollars, not just like small things. And I flagged that um, over email to my boss. Um, I believe it got picked up by a family member of the CEO who was working in the business. You know, I, of course, suddenly lost my job because of the GFC, which I thought was just bullshit. And I had 10 working days to, I was on an, ex, an employer-specific visa in Washington. So I had 10 business days to find a new job. I mean, it was the most amount of stress I'd been under probably in my career. So I had to transition instantly and I looked around and I thought, what is the best role in communication in Washington at the moment? And that happened to be happened to be with the Save Darfur Coalition. They were the grassroots advocacy organisation responsible for ending the genocide in Darfur. And there was a candidate process that was well and truly underway, in fact, in its final stages. And through my incredible network, I stepped into that candidate process and got the job. So that transition was fast and furious. And it was a natural progression from what I was doing because I was already helping people on the ground, you know, in Iraq and in other places, doing what I could to alleviate suffering, even in my small micro way. And so that transition to the Save Darfur Coalition made perfect sense. Now, I probably could have taken another job that would have made less sense, but I thought, like, what's the point in compromising? If I had to go home, I had to go home. But I thought I'm going to really try to be consistent and try to step into a role where I felt like I could create value and really add something to the team. It was still painful, though, because I was totally gutted about losing my job, but I had to I had to switch my mindset into I had to let go. I had to let go of it in 24 hours because I needed the brain space. I needed to free up the brain space and the energy and the optimism to start a new role. And that's a really interesting part of this adaptive mindset and, and the way we boost our AQ, our adaptive quotient. There's a simple framework that sits around that, which is about, which is basically engage, activate and release. And so in a normal circumstance, like in a normal you know, world, I would have been actively engaged with what was going on around me and changes in the market. And, you know, my, I would have been alert to changes in the market. And in fact, I'll give you another, can I give you another transition that probably makes more sense to that framework? So before I worked with the aid group, I was working as a, a producer and a journalist with Al Jazeera English. And I was walking down the street one day on K Street, which is where all the lobby, it's a big lobbyist street, um, about hmm, five blocks to the White House, I guess. Um, same, same to the Capitol. So it's, you know, you feel you feel like a big deal if you're walking down that street going to work. It's a pretty privileged position to be in. That's the centre of the world where you feel like all the decisions are being made. And I was walking to the Al Jazeera English Bureau and for the first time in my career, I did not pick up a copy of the New York Times because I was reading it on my Blackberry. Blackberries, remember them? I found it the other day. I found it. I had... I had such a giggle. I was like, oh, it's so cute. It's so 2007. But I, I observed my behaviour. I was an active member of the news business, yet I was not prepared to pay for content. But I was getting paid to, I was being paid to produce content, but I wasn't going to pay to read it. In that moment, literally I had about 50 feet before I got to the bureau and I decided in that space that I had to leave journalism because the business model of news was failing and it was failing right in front of me. And so I, about a month later, I ended up moving to the, the aid organisation because I decided that 
I couldn't stay. I was engaged. I was highly alert to the signals of change. Um, so that's engage. Activate was sort of activating my energy and optimism for change and seeing what the opportunities were in that moment. And there were many. And then releasing, I had to. Re- I just had to get over it. I had to release the attachment I had to being a reporter, which I love to do. But I had to let it go because I needed the energy to move forward. And so that's probably a better example of engage, activate, release, which is a a very helpful framework for upgrading our AQ. And we can do do this in small ways as a rehearsal for big change. But, you know, you can't respond to change if you don't see it coming. So it's a very helpful habit for us all to get into, to just pay attention to the market. What's happening in the market? What are the habits of our consumers? How is that changing what we need to be providing? And no doubt at Virgin Active, you've been listening very closely to your customers the last 18 months about what's going to work for them and, you know, changing course accordingly. A hundred percent. I love that there's a level of awareness in this, right? It's just the self-awareness about how you're feeling like in that moment when you didn't buy the paper, like just having that awareness, but then also this greater awareness of, yeah, what is happening in my industry and where, where do I see it? But also the risk, the risk that I had, that I then knew I had to take, but mm. I had to do it then in 2000 and I think it was 2007, 2008. And you know what blew my mind? I got up to the newsroom and I just, I just asked a couple of my colleagues, you know, random question out of interest, like, have you got a plan B? Like what if Al Jazeera folds in Washington and comes out of Doha or KL or, you know, London? Cause it kind of, it rolled like each bureau, manage the coverage as it rolled around the globe to the time zone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my colleagues would say, oh, forget about it. Like I'm, I'm a journalist, like I'm sacred kind of thing. And I remember thinking for a bunch of people who cover cro- unforeseen tragedies for a living, pretty interesting observation to make. It was like, you know what, it was like watching Hurricane Katrina and I was in the newsroom when that was happening. So it was like sitting on the shore watching a hurricane coming straight towards us, but everyone was saying, oh, we'll be fine. It's going to go around us. It's not going to hit us, which is, which is exactly what everyone said about Hurricane Katrina. And then 12 hours later, it's a total catastrophe. And what, what really, I just thought, I couldn't believe it at the time. I had people saying, no, I'm going to be totally fine. I thought, no, we're not. We're not going to be fine. So I'm going to get out of journalism. In my mind, I thought, I'll step out now because I'm already working 12-hour shifts for less than $300 a day and I am legitimately exhausted. Like I had to turn around two-and-a-half-minute packages every three hours at Al Jazeera, um, which was a really super demanding workload for a newsroom. But, by the way, it was the best work I've ever done. Al Jazeera English is, I think, um, best practice in, in international news coverage, as we've seen with Afghanistan this week and Charlotte Bellis, who's leading their coverage. So... But I remember thinking, I'm going to step out now because I'm already worked to the bone and I need to step into something else. So in 10 years' time, in five years' time, I simply have more options. And like I said, I'm doing, I'm not doing the good gigs, I'm doing the great gigs. And so I did. I stepped out in 2008. And even today, I have colleagues send me messages on LinkedIn, and understandably so, you know, could you spare some time to talk to me about making a transition? I'm like, of course I can. I'm really happy to. Um, but I do think it's interesting that I've, you know, this is something I raised 12 years ago. Um, and I, I think that we all, we all, you know, our ability to forecast is a really important part of 
leading ourselves and leading other people. And so, look, on reflection, I'm not saying I got it right and other people didn't. I just watched, I just observed my behaviour. And so being truly engaged with our environment does mean looking at our behaviour, you know, um, objectively and thinking, you know, what else do I need to be aware of? Um, And I guess I just feel lucky that I made that observation and made a move so quickly because it led to, you know, an extraordinary set of circumstances and it, it led to future fit. You know, if I ha- I could I could have stayed in the newsroom. I mean, I love reporting. I I mean, covering <laughs> when you're part of a high, high performing news team every day, gosh, it's a very addictive thing and I can see why my colleagues, you know, have stayed the distance because uh wow, it is it's really something you learn so much, you come into contact with new amazing people every day and you really feel like you're you belong, you you know, that sense of cohesiveness and that that sense of team and belonging, you know, I I have never felt that since I've been in a newsroom. And so I understand the addiction and understand why people stay. But I felt I had to take a risk and and move out to see, um, you know, how else I could contribute to the world. Sorry, that was a really long answer. (laughs) Oh, beautiful answer. (laughs) And, and And it speaks to transition as well, right? Yeah, I mean, we're accountable. Like we've we've just never been more accountable in our in our lives for taking decisions that that might be painful, but ultimately have a payoff. Mm. And you're quite open in the book as well about being let go from that aid agency role. Um, <laughs> what did you learn from? I learned not to be so open. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but look, you know, that shows your integrity, though, right? Look, uh, you know, at the time I thought I, I, I was, I had this, gosh, I had this amazing network of people who were all in the White House at the time and all had really important gigs on Capitol Hill. And I remember thinking, I, you know, what if this came out? And they looked at me and said, did you know that was going on? And what if I knew it was going on and didn't say anything? How, like, how intact would my integrity have been then? Because, you know, as a, as a result of my memo being leaked, things got really serious. You know, the USAID suspended funding, billions of dollars in funding. They suspended funding to that organisation. The whole board had to go, the CEO and his entire family had to go and repay what they had taken, you know, in air quote bonuses from the organisation. They had to rename the organisation. I mean, everything I said in my email to my boss basically happened. How could I have been trusted by people in my circle where integrity is everything you know if you're if you're if you you know as as mentioned um by one of our senior military college military leaders you know the standard you walk past is the standard you accept and I take that seriously even when I lose out of it I'll take a loss if it means um, essentially whistleblowing and that's what it was I was you know I blew the whistle on what was happening and and it, it hurt a lot. It hurt me. I lost a lot of friends. Well, can you call them friends? I don't know. But, you know, I, I took, you know, I took a massive hit over that. I don't think that anyone in their organisation, a couple of people are still speaking to me. But, you know, a lot of people saw that as a betrayal because the work on the ground outweighed the behaviour of the CEO. And I got that. But I still felt like if this behaviour was allowed to continue, it was going to ultimately compromise the help that we were affording people on the ground in, you know, in conflict conflict areas and beyond so yeah I mean that's a question for all of us like what are you like are you willing to speak up 
in moments where you should, because if you can't demonstrate radical integrity in those in small moments, how could you demonstrate it in the moments that really carry more weight and moments, greater moments, I guess, that matter for for many, many more people. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a difficult and very personal thing. Which brings me to a question about workplace culture and I guess that balance between is this culture that I'm part of aligned with who I am and the balance of that with how much should I adapt? Well, I think that we all know what it's like to work in a toxic work culture um, and toxic work cultures don't change because they go remote. Um, as my friend Don Price says at Atlassian, um, you know, the expert on work culture. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're in a if you're in a workplace that is not that doesn't feel inclusive or supportive, or if you feel like you don't belong, the only option may be to exit and to find a business that you're more aligned with. And I think that as we get older, our you know, we become more anchored in our values and they do drive our decisions. So it's a very valid question. It's a valid question. Uh, that we should be role modeling to other people around us, you know, like if there's bad behavior, you can only have so much control over bad leaders. And, you know, you may not necessarily be able to limit your exposure to that and your exposure to how decisions are made in a business, which is, you know, I think my interpretation of, of the definition around culture. So how are decisions made? Are you part of those? Do you feel included? Is it a place where you feel like you're valued? And I think that that is going to be a uh, a bigger and bigger issue for business as we move through the 2020s. And interestingly, um, there's really strong research around a sense of identity and belonging. So when people feel like they belong at work, they're three and a half times more likely to contribute to their full, fullest potential. That should not be lost on leaders because it, you will lose people. You know, your retention, your business's performance and retention, I think is going to come down to, um, I think it's going to, that's going to land clearly on the on the shoulders of every leader in a business. And, you know, if you're not demonstrating traits that support a cohesive culture, then you're going to lose great talent. And that talent is going to, they're going to step out, they're going to register as a sole trader, and they're going to be in that, in that, in this incredible talent pool that's going to sit outside of every big corporate and every big business. And I think Target in the US is paying college tuition to to try to attract talent. We are going to see huge initiatives to get people to come to work. And, you know, there may not be anything a business can do to bring you back into the workforce if their culture is average. And that's big for leaders as well, right? Like being able to, you know, to foster the culture that people want to be a part of. And I guess jumping back also to purpose, it's kind of as a leader, you know, understanding the purpose of your people and and making sure that those things are aligned. Because like you said, you know, these people are much more highly engaged that way. It's better for everyone if that's how we show up as a leader. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, I think the responsibility that leaders have that they're, or that they're about to realise they have is that, is that, you know, if they're able to, you know, um, you know, our relationship with time, tools and talent has changed and that all feeds into the kind of culture that we are, that we're a part of. And I think that, you know, leaders have a responsibility to, you know, encourage their teams to self-propel their own learning. And, you know, that all of that is part of, well, to what extent is, is this business looking after me? You know, if I, 
mean, I run digital programs with some of Australia's biggest businesses, and I can't tell you how many emails I get on the side that say, you know, I was just about to leave this business, but the fact that they've invested in me and put me on this program has blown my mind, and I'm now committing to another five years. So, you know, we cannot underestimate the role that learning and development has um, at a time when many businesses are sort of strike a redlining that, you know, in the in the PL statement. You know, it's the first thing to go. L and D is the first thing to go um, in most businesses at a time when when money is tight. But I say there's never been a more important time to, you know, to uh, uh, invest in your staff because they'll simply look down the road or across the road and think, well, what? Who's our competitor? What are they offering? Is there a better deal? Is there a better deal for me? And and where's that? All of a sudden, we're looking at a different value exchange. So there needs to be a mutual value exchange between the employee and the employer, which I don't think we've seen before. Like we've seen that safety and job security when we sign up to a big business, but now the power dynamics are really shifting to the individual and to the employee. And they're looking for a 50-50. They want a a mutual value exchange. What are you going to give me if I deliver on these KPIs? Something I'm, I'm not sure we've seen and I think we've only seen the start of it. And you started Future Fit in 2012. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to now, mind you, in the middle of a pandemic, so of course lots has changed. Um, what, what do you see over that whole period, not just the COVID period, but over this whole period? Like what have you seen change in regards to being Future Fit? I mean, a, a machine's going to take all our jobs. You know, I think that's maybe one thing we always think of when we think of the future of work. But, yeah, what, what's what's the big shifts? I think that we should downplay the role that automation and AI is going to have in our day-to-day lives. I when I was I went to a, an exponential innovation program at a NASA facility in Silicon Valley in 2018, and that's where I got the idea. That's where I got that I felt compelled to write about being future fit because I walked out of that program, and I understand and love the technology around AI metadata cloud automation, et cetera. But I also believe that we there's a lot of hype that sits around robots taking our jobs. I think that we need to keep that in check. And you know, when econo- and remember that when economic historians talk about the history of labor and the history of the workforce, they all land on the same point when it comes to disruption and that is and technology. And that is that it's not the technology or the disruption that drives social change. It's ultimately you know, how we decide to respond to it. So we have a role in transformation. We're accountable, you know, when a business is transforming because a business can't transform unless it's people transform. So, you know, don't worry about technology. This is this is the byline of Future Fit. It's not about disruption. It's not about technology. It's about your talent. The future is about your talent. It's not about technology. It's about the way you choose to respond to change and the degree to which you are equipped in skill set, mindset and behaviour to be in active pursuit of change. And how can we be better prepared? I mean, even just now, you know, coming back to the COVID period, we're working from home more, well, right now, 100%. Um, you know, there are people out there homeschooling at the same time, you know, um, a whole family sharing the house at once, not seeing our boss that often, especially in the flesh, not working face-to-face with our colleagues. Like these are all pretty significant, massive changes. So what should we be preparing 
even in the short term, but maybe even long term, how do we prepare for these radical changes? I I want to say that I think the future of our own work sits around our identity and it sits around personal agency. And that's a certainty that we can absorb change, that we can stay in control and continue to deliver value in a professional environment in, in a professional environment that is shifting. And we will be in this environment indefinitely. You know, I don't believe that the office experience is completely over, but mm, you know, that's the way it's looking. And how do we know another strain of COVID isn't on the way? You know, we will see micro outbreaks after micro outbreaks and they will continue to disrupt the way we work. I think it's going to be very difficult to get hundreds of thousands of knowledge workers back into an office once they, you know, we've all got a taste of not doing a commute. I used to do 100 flights a year. I will never do that again. (laughs) You know, there's nothing more expensive than being unhappy. And I'm sure many of your listeners are experiencing that as well. But what can we do? We can simply be aware that, you know, it's our personal agency, it's our own initiative and our belief in ourselves that we can continue to respond as we've all just responded the last 18 months. This whole country has just demonstrated in the last 18 months that we are highly adaptable, that we're we're capable of change, we're capable of extraordinary collaboration when we need to. You know, it's amazing how fast things can get done, you know, when there's a greater imperative. And that's what we've seen. We're already capable of that. So it's a a continuation of what we've already been demonstrating. Mm. And you talk about adaptability in the book as being kind of almost the number one when it comes to your future fit list. And We've, of course, we've seen we've kind of had forced to be adaptive during this period, but typically we do find it challenging. Is sometimes you know, as an individual, and even more so as a business at times. Um, and I guess this period now has kind of forced a lot of that. But I mean, you wrote the book before the before COVID. Why was adaptability so high on your list? I think it was high on my list personally because of what I had been through. And, you know, I had recognised in my own certain context and in my own, in my own behaviour, I had, I'd recognised that the way we respond to change is everything, but we're better equipped to respond to change when we can see it coming. So again, that engage, activate, release, rather engage, activate, release. Let's be engaged with our environment properly, not just giving it lip service. Let's be properly engaged with what's going on and let's activate optimism for change and let's let go of what we need to let go of. And for a lot of people, that can be very difficult. But that's part of recognising we have an emotional, there's an emotional component to change. Change is very emotional, but we've got to we've got to understand and kind of park emotions in some circumstances because we need to get on with it. We need to get on with life. I think that everyone is, because I said, we've all just demonstrated how adaptable we are. You know, what a great awareness to have to upgrade our own AQ. And if we start doing that in small ways, then we'll be ready for the larger ways that that are coming down the pipeline. But yeah, I mean, adaptability for me has been kind of an unwelcome, sometimes an, an unwelcome skill that I've had to use and demonstrate and embrace and embrace. But I... I guess as a journalist, you know, my my mindset has been geared towards adapting all day, every day, because as a journalist, it's your job to, to, you know, I was thinking about this this morning, you know, you you walk into a newsroom, you didn't, at 8.55, you've got no idea what you're doing until you get into the newsroom at nine, or it might be 6am, whatever. But 
you've, your mindset has got to instantly be engaged and activated towards we're going to have a great day. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. I could be getting in a chopper to go and cover a bushfire. I could be driving towards a school campus where there's been a mass shooting, which has happened to me. You've got to activate your energy for that story because it has relevance and importance to the audience. And so I've grown up every single day. I've had to step into a very uncomfortable situation with a group of people that I may not know being a news crew. And so you've got to solve problems. You've got to be creative. You've got to be very clear in your communication. You've got to just, you know, be like actively engaged in the whole day and creative. And you've got to have a great network. So all of these things ironically end up being the chapters of Future Fit because that's what I feel I've been, that's what I have been kind of forced into as a career, you know, in a career um, as a journalist. That's what journalists do every day. It's a pretty remarkable experience to to be a journalist and and I guess I want to put forward what has I think and I hope worked for me so far and, and this is of course sorry let me just add that this is of course on top of you know lots of research including recent research out of Harvard that says very clearly you know the the demand for soft skills in the marketplace is growing exponentially because these are the skills that businesses need when they're in a crisis you know you yes you can't necessarily mobilise 55,000 people with an Excel spreadsheet. You've got to do that through really great leadership and communication. And I guess that kind of comes back to the machine thing, right? Like these are human qualities. These are things we we imagine that machines will never, you know, that'll, that'll never be their job. Yeah, I don't think that robots taking our job is what we need to necessarily be concerned about. I don't know if that should be on, in the forefront of our mind because I think that AI, and you've, even we've seen with driverless cars, that technology, people thought that we'd have driverless cars on the road by now, but it's still a long way off. That technology is still a long way off being safe enough to be introduced to our community at large. Other than being a huge waste of my time, social media. (laughs) (laughs) Correct. Correct. Uh, What is the power and how do we harness the power of social media? Oh, God, social media. Oh, you know, um, in what way, how is, harness the power of it in what way, to what end, like for what purpose? Well, I guess for, for work and career, for progression, for knowledge, you know, I guess there is a drive. I mean, even if I just take being a yoga teacher, you know, I look, my Instagram has nothing to do with yoga. Yeah, and I don't necessarily want to be the famous yogi across the world. I love my role. I get to touch a lot of teachers in the thing that I do now but it's still there it's still there as should I be on there more should I be more um, active in regards to my job on social media and I guess that's another question should my social media be aligned with my profession because right now for me it's not it's all my Instagram is just hiking and beautiful pictures of trees and (laughs) well but like I said before Mark you've started a conversation around well-being Mm. And so, in fact, your whole Instagram is totally aligned mm. with your purpose and your your core value prop. Yeah, true. It's totally aligned. It doesn't need to be yoga every day. I think social media has a role, but that role is highly contextual and that role has to be determined by everyone in their own way. Yeah, I mean, it's look, it's great to, I think it's about being connected to an audience. And I don't think we should be on social media unless our intention is to be connected. Mm. You know, there's no point putting up a post 
and not responding to those who are really engaged with it. And it's like LinkedIn. I, I try to encourage people, if you're going to um, add a comment on LinkedIn, like try to add value. Don't just add commentary for the sake of it. Like be purposeful about your exchanges. We don't like transactional exchanges. Uh, I don't think anyone really likes to feel like they're a transaction. And so if you are going to have a profile on social media, then then be purposeful about it. I think that I think that's the simplest answer. And also be be aware of your privacy settings. I have um FutureFit has a um I've got an Instagram account, but I've closed it because I'm I'm just sick of people, you know, I, I have no interest in people following me that are Bitcoin miners or people that want to copy my profile and set up their own, which has happened. It's scary stuff out there. So I like to keep my profile settings, you know, as private as I can, where I can, you know, says a girl who's got a photo of a face on the book. But as part of a communicator, I, I want to connect with people. I wanted people to pick up a book and say, and feel like they're connected to the issue about being, being future fit because they're connected to me. I I didn't put a graphic, a kind of ambiguous graphic on the front page of a book around the future of work because the future of work was ambiguous enough, you know, a couple of years ago. Like how do you, I wouldn't have sold any books, I don't think, because how can you, you can't connect with the topic or a random graphic. So, you know, that was a purposeful decision about having my face on a book. But no, I do not choose to have for it to be open season on Instagram or even LinkedIn. So we've got to make decisions that feel right and comfortable for us. And similarly to adaptability, you've got creativity on your future fit list as well. And to be honest, before I read that chapter, if someone asked me how creative I was, I would say zero. And I recognized also in regard, you know, saying that, like saying zero, I I also understand that there's parts of my own limiting self-beliefs that kind of don't want to engage with creativity. It was kind of like, oh, that's a bit too left brain, you know. But then reading that chapter in your book, I was like, oh, hang on. Like, actually, I am quite creative. I also loved the part where (laughs) there was these mindful elements of creativity. I think you said something about, you know, watch the bubbles on the coffee. There, There was a couple of little examples like that. And it just really sparked. I was like, actually, no, this is a really powerful uh, tool Uh, and it's something that we should practice and uh, you know other than putting together some cool sequences in yoga and pilates (laughs) you know i didn't really think that i was that creative but yeah can you can you tell us a bit more about creativity and how that's you know an important part for our future career professional selves and by the way, being a Pilates addict myself, I appreciate the small sequences. So, and, and, and respect. Layering and the music. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, all of that. All of the above. Bring it. Um, well, what's interesting about creativity is that we get less creative as we get older because we, we don't have as much playtime as we used to. There's a really interesting study out that says when we're five, nine, we're, you know, we are, we're 98% creative or 98% um, of five-year-olds are considered highly creative, but that number reduces to 30% when we're 10, 12% when we're 15, and only 2% of adults are considered highly creative because essentially what scientists are saying is that the more responsibility we take on as adults, the less space we have to be creative because there's no, there's no playtime. 
I love this subject because I walk a lot and I didn't realise the role that walking had in my ability to, to think creatively. So let me just say there are two different types of creativity. There's convergent, convergent thinking where we judge ideas and criticise them and refine them. And then there's divergent thinking. And this is where the magic happens. This is where your, you know, your, the neural connectors are firing in your brain. So this is where truly original ideas come from your, sub, your subconscious and, you know, these are the untested untested and kind of random association. And, you know, we all can tap into that. So there are a couple of ideas, you know, having more space is really helpful, which I know isn't realistic for a lot of people. But Stanford University researchers found that even walking half an hour a day increases our divergent thinking by 60%, 60%. That's extraordinary, isn't it? And I can actually say to you that I started walking 7Ks a day about probably about three years ago. I started walking 7Ks a day. It takes me an hour 15 to an hour 20-ish every morning. And I can tell you that there's no way I could have written a book unless I was in the habit of walking every day. There's just no way. So I've felt the tangible benefits for me and I encourage anyone to start walking and You don't have to necessarily listen to podcasts, but give your mind, give your brain that time to process and to just bring together random associations, process and just think and like let your let your mind wander because that is divergent thinking. And it's a really brilliant thing. Many of us don't consider ourselves creative, but there's three different versions um, or categories sort of that are considered in the mainstream, small C, professional C and big C. Small C creativity is where we're doing something as simple as rearranging our wardrobe and pulling together leftovers from dinner last night. So that's small C creativity. That's, you know, we all have that potential. Professional C is where we, um, the, the professional creativity that we employ in our working lives. That's, you know, things like writing a report to creating a pitch for a client, that kind of thing. And then the big C creativity is creativity that that shifts cultural paradigms and I would say you know something like the opera house is is what what I would consider a big c um, degree of creativity but you can see how small c creativity is a rehearsal for big c creativity but it starts it starts with something as simple as giving yourself space giving yourself time and look you know we're all time you know, everyone's in a time deficit to some degree, aren't they? Because of the the current demands that we're all under, whether it's homeschooling or, you know, doing an extra hour of work every day, which is what the data is showing that we're working longer every day. We're spending, I think 45% of us are spending less time on personal hobbies. And that's sustainable for a while, but not forever. And especially in today's day, um, when we are at home uh, and not seeing people, especially our colleagues, um, other than on Zoom and Teams. <laughs> How important are these relationships with our work? Well, they're critical because we all want to feel like we belong. And when we feel like we don't belong, we really, you know, it's damaging in many ways, not just individually, but certainly for the for the business. And EY did um, a great report on belonging even before COVID hit. And I think the number was like 39% of Americans felt like they did not belong. That was before covid so, you know, imagine what that looks like now. And this is why, you know, this is why we do have to find ways to feel like we're having meaningful conversations and meaningful connections with people like and things that aren't transactional because that sense of belonging will be 
you know, will feed directly into our sense of identity, our sense of purpose and our sense of potential. So yeah, relationships are absolutely everything. And, and you, and everyone listening would know that you probably furthered some associations through COVID and you've, and others have dropped off the radar and that's all fine. But it, isn't it wonderful to have a conversation with a colleague who you've been working with for, you know, maybe five years, but you didn't actually know that they had three brown, chubby, gorgeous Labradors, you know, and now, and now you do because they're wandering past the Zoom meetings. So, you know, these insights really do go a long way to helping us all feel like we're part of a more cohesive culture. A couple of call to actions to finish our chat. What do you think are the top skills or what would you recommend today if we were to go and work on something? Look, I'm going to say well-being, even though it's actually not a chapter, not a chapter in Future Fit, but, you know, I have, you know, I'm having like chapter regret, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if I can call it that. <laughs> um, whichever you, I'm told every author does, it's, it's just, it's painful what you go through as an author because oh, you can't believe you wrote that. You, you've come so far in such a short amount of time with your thought process that you wish you could change everything. But, oh, you know, well-being, we have to have, I think we need a well-being ethos. I think we need to write down a radical well-being ethos for each of our, you know, for, for ourselves uh, and those around us and really start to figure out what does radical well-being look like for us? Like how do we work on it and how do we end up in a place where we really feel free and light and properly engaged and present with everything around us? So well-being because we can't have anything unless we're we've got we're in a strong state of well-being. I would start with I would say reputation capital because the most stable part of leadership is knowing who we are. So we've got to be really clear on that. Like what is your yeah, what's the conversation you want to start? And then I'd probably look I think adaptability is is a is a key one for all of us. Um because of what we're going through now and what still may be coming down the pipeline in terms of, you know, changes in the workplace. Uh, I think communication, clear thinking is connected to, you know, people who are clear thinkers are considered, let me start that again, if we're a clear communicator, do you love this? Do you love that I'm just, you know, talking about communication not being clear? Let me make a really clear point. It's really interesting to me how clear thinking is connected to clear communication and that's connected to being seen as a competent leader. So communication is often dismissed and disregarded in many executive education courses. And I think that is the most, in, it's, it's the most critical piece as a leader. You've got to be communicating um, frequently and actively with your teams. And so investing time in understanding how to be a clear communicator is really critical because we're all surrounded by so much noise and it's really about capturing attention and maintaining attention if we are going to be negotiating change and deploying influence with those around us. Mm. And you mentioned very briefly in the book about having a good outlet and it was, a, you know, it was a brief moment in the book, um, but for me, it, it kind of landed quite strongly. I was like, actually, and I just stopped for a moment and I was like, how do I, when I'm under the pump, when I'm freaking out, feeling anxious, you know, what do I do? And of course, as a yoga teacher, I can do those things, but actually it was going for a run or going for a walk, but that hadn't really crossed, like it wasn't like a until I read that part in the book, I wasn't really con fully conscious of it. And I'm not sure many of our listeners would be, you know, it's kind of, what do I do when I'm in that moment? Well, I have a real thing about the word resilience. You know, it's just so 
overused and I think not very well understood because, you know, it's our, yes, it's our ability to bounce back from kind of difficulty in whatever way you want to define that, but it's also a doing word. Like you can't exercise resilience by sitting around thinking about it. You've got to change the chemistry in your body. And so when I talk about outlet, I mean, you know, we all deal with uncertainty in different ways. And so we've got to find a baseline that stabilizes our minds and that really kind of brings us back to a sense of order. And so I started swimming, ocean swimming. Look, I'm lucky enough to be near the beach. I started ocean swimming when COVID first hit. And, you know, to not be around my phone for 30 or 40 minutes, it's not just that, not just not being around the phone. It's, um, yeah, what is something that you do and when you do it, you think, gosh, why don't I do that more often? You know, because it brings you that sense of, of joy. And I think that's a really interesting thing going back to what I said at the top of our chat about waking up, being connected. And I get up because of nature. I mean, it's because apparently that's my baseline and it's something that I've ignored for many, many years in my life. And, you know, what a, what a disservice I've been doing to myself. But when I'm, when I'm, you know, smashing through the chop, even in very shallow water, and I'm looking at the lines of the sand underneath me, for me, that's, it's, it's transformative. It's transportative for me. And so I feel like we all need to really identify what is that baseline that we need to return to when we are feeling uncertain and how can we stabilize our minds and our emotions, put order to things around us and be more confident about making decisions that are in front of us. Like what kind of mindset do you want to be in or what kind of mindset do you want to shift to when you're feeling that way? Of course you want to feel calm and you want to feel like you're you're in a strong position to make decisions, to be decisive. So what does that look like for you? And that will be different for everyone. But gee, it's so powerful, isn't it? I get out of the water and I think, I can't believe I've lived for so long without swimming. What, like, what have I been doing? Which is all part of my post-COVID reset and not wanting to return to the way things were. And I went through a phase, I'm sure that some of your listeners will relate to this. I went through a week where I looked at my diary and I was totally overscheduled. And I actually, I felt anxiety. I felt like, oh, I can't, like, I'm not going back there. I can't go back there. That's a pre-COVID diary, you know, like, oh, let me just move things around. Let me bring a better version of myself to those meetings because they're less frequent and because I've been a bit more purposeful about, about you know, how I'm spending my time. And you talk about the elevator pitch as well, and you've got a nice little chapter <laughs> on that. I can see, I'm kind of looking at your face thinking, <laughs> you know, it's, it's such a, gosh, it's such an 80s term. It's like personal brand. It belongs back there with shoulder pads, doesn't it? But, <laughs> Um, but it's really about, it's a profile pitch because, you know, we're three-dimensional now. People will see us online. Thousands of people would see a LinkedIn profile, right, compared to how many people you'd meet up with in person now. And, you know, aligning our online and offline presence is really critical. But I think a profile pitch is really about courtesy more than anything. Like, you know, have you got onto a Zoom and someone starts talking and you don't know where they sit in the business? You don't know, like, what, what they're doing here? I think it's really important to say, um, hi, everyone. My name's Andrea Clark and, you know, I'm the author of Future Fit. It's my, do- my job to train a 1,000 people a year to be future fit in their careers for the 2020s because everything, after, everything I say after that, hopefully, is going to make 
more sense. It's going to sit in that context of what I do and why I do it. So I think for everyone, we everyone needs that because it's a simple courtesy that we need to show other people. And if those people are going to trust us, that starts with how we talk about ourselves. Mm. And it does come back to that alignment with our purpose a bit, doesn't it? I think that was the that was the thing that made me think more about, especially my LinkedIn. It was like, you know, the description about me. And it was it was a bit more about everything that I've done. You know, it was like the old jobs that I've done and less about what actually, you know, what is my mission? What's my drive? And then when you were talking in the book about, you know, if 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 you were in an elevator and had 60 seconds to tell someone who you are or what you do, like it actually made me rethink about what I've got in that description. Or imagine being caught on a Zoom when it's just you and the CEO. That happens to a lot of people I know and they call me and they say, I am so glad we had that conversation about the profile pitch because I literally just got caught out and got put on the spot and the head of the business asked me what I do for the business. And I think it's really important that we have, you know, a metric to show there. Like it's my job to lead a project that generates, it's my job to lead, um, yeah, there was someone at Telstra who whose job it was to put 9 million Apple phones into the market, you know. So those micro moments are about building trust, not building interest, not losing interest, you know, and I think we've all walked away from a moment where we felt like, oh, I had a moment to talk about myself and I totally stuffed it up. And, you know, I've worked with thousands of people over the years who, um, and some of them, I love it when they, when they kind of come back around to me and they say, you're not going to believe it. A week after we had that conversation, I got bailed up in the lift by the chairman of the bank who said, tell me what you do. And based on that 30 second pitch, they said, you know what, we should actually talk about about that initiative because at the tag the tag of that pitch was you know what other value they could create for the business so you've got a couple of elements here you've got what you do without saying what's on your business card because that's usually boring and totally unrepresentative of your output so you've got what you actually do like you know a couple of your strong points around you know how colleagues find you um, you know what's it like to work with you because people want to know what's it like to be around you and then do you have, what's the highlight of your career or what's an idea you have for the business? Because that needs a bit of consideration before you put it in front of someone and you need to verbally practice that because verbal delivery is very different to the written word. So you have to be candid and conversational. You, you never want to sound rehearsed. So there was a, a really great example that I include in the book about uh, this wonderful young lady I met who was a customer service agent road transport basically but her background was that she was a Sudanese refugee and by the time she was 15 she had safely negotiated the asylum of herself and her seven or eight siblings but that wasn't anywhere so talk about talk about natural born leader right so I actually workshopped her LinkedIn profile and rewrote it for her and felt like it was it it really did her justice so this was her this was her definition i'm a flexible patient and supportive customer service professional experienced in supporting clients and customers both in an administrative administrative and retail environment adapting personality and communication skills to every situation okay here was my take i'm a natural born leader the oldest of seven children who fled africa during a violent civil war by the age of 10 
I had navigated large-scale refugee camps and negotiated the safe asylum of my siblings to Australia. It's because of this that I'm comfortable leading small teams by clearly defining a mission and determining measures of success. I value integrity, trust and respect and am inspired to learn from those around me. I mean, it's two different people, right? It is. But like, which person would you hire? And so, yes, it's the same person. But to me, there's no greater example of why our backstory matters and why we need to weave it into those introductions about ourselves. Because when we're in such short transactions, you know, we need to build trust and we need to build interest. That's where we are. We're in this this you know era of micro windows. And in that, there's you know, especially in that example, there's a human element to that, right? Like there's a, of course there is, of course yeah. there is, yeah. And that connection that you would have. I mean, I don't even know what that woman looks like, but there's like there's this feeling of wow, you would really yeah. get a, you get a much better sense of who she is. Of course, and you know that that's why it's something that we need to you know we need to really consider it. But how how often do you get a moment to yourself to really reflect on? what that would look like. So those are the kind of activities and and exercises that I thread through the book because these are things for everyone and often I I find that it's not just grads who need to consider this, it's people who are 45, 55, 65 who are still in the workforce but haven't necessarily reflected on and, you know, defined well what is their capital? What's their social capital, reputation capital? What does it sound like and what is it, you know, what's the impact they want to have in moments where they've got a shot at a new task or a promotion or a new job? And I might just add that it's in being clear on that, that our, our sponsors, our advisors and our, our mentors can also be clear on that to pitch about you when you're not in the room or on the Zoom. Those are the moments, those are the big breaks we can get, but people have got to know how to talk about you. And if you're not clear on it, you can't expect others to be clear on it and and effectively advocate on your behalf. 100%. Important. I love that part of the book. Guys, you have to read this book. Um, we're nearly there, but what's thriving look like to you? Mm, you know, I think we all know when we're in a really happy place. And I know I'm really happy when, I'm, when I whistle. Like That's so random, isn't it? But when I whistle and... You know, everyone has their little thing, but like if I if I whistle during the day, I know I'm really happy. Yeah, like that's that's, that's like that's as good as it gets in my world if I'm whistling. <laughs> oh, but it's 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 a little indicator, isn't it? And I know that I'm I know I'm really happy when I when I pick up the phone and I'm you know I'm, I've got real energy. My phone rings. I've got real energy. How can I be helpful? What's going on? Gosh, you know, that is the, that's the upside of all of the hard work that you do. You want to be in a place where you're, you know, um, really happy to help other people whenever you're asked to. And what do you want more than anything else in this life? Chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) Chocolate all day long, my friend. You know, I'm, my love for high-end carbs knows no boundaries, So, um, which is why I walk 7Ks a day. <laughs> so it's a, it's, a, it's a fight. It's a daily fight that continues. Beautiful. Yeah. Chocolate and whistling. I love that. That's yeah. a beautiful way to finish. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Um, look, it has been so great to chat to you. And look, and I love the book. 
Um, and thank you so much for putting that in my hands. I wholeheartedly agree that everyone out there working needs to read that book. And if not, like it's the perfect time really as well. You know, we are, you know, feeling very insecure in our jobs and the future of our jobs and the future of our businesses. It just, it's a beautiful book and will really help to, for me, it just helped to settle me. And, you know, the tools and the the guidance in there, even, you know, that eleva- elevator pitch one we were just talking about, like it actually creates a lot of, a, a sense of ease um, and, and something to do right now today without feeling like you have to go and invest in thousands of dollars of training and ongoing education, you know. So thank you very much and thank you for such a great chat. Where can people find you and find the book? So my website is futurefit.com.au. You can buy the book from there or, you know, it's at all good bookstores, um, Booktopia, Demix, my publisher, majorstreet.com.au. Yeah, so um, thank you so much for having me. What a great conversation. I really appreciate it. No worries. Well, thank you. Uh, Guys, we'll make sure we put all of those links in the notes as well. So just check out the show notes and you'll be able to find Andrea, find her website, find the book. Otherwise, enjoy, Andrea. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much. And um, maybe we can chat again sometime in the future. Anytime. Thanks so much, Mark. Thanks so much for pressing play today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and consider thoughtfully what your elevator pitch is or what you might want it to be. If you're loving this episode, then please hit subscribe and tell all your friends and family about the Virgin Active Minds podcast. Until next time, bye for now.